Hey, hey D&D, D&D fam. fam. I'm Quick. And I'm Lee. And you're listening to Divas, Divas and Duckets. So what is a diva? I think divas get a bad rep. But to me, diva is all about the attitude. As for ducats, it's your finances, your assets, Skrilla, Guap, your coin. We're talking all things with the potential to affect your pockets. And while we're attorneys by trade, we are divas by choice. Divas and Ducats is for edutainment purposes. Y'all, we are not Series 511 (laughs) or 703 professionals. This does not create a financial advisor or attorney-client relationship. The views expressed here are solely our opinions and the opinions of our guests. It's just our opinions, y'all. Okay, Divas, let's talk Ducats. Hey, D&D fam. What's good? What's good, everyone? Hey, Diva Lee. How are you? I can't complain. What's going on, Quick? Uh, well, things are going on, you know, shaking in, shaking in the U.S. with removing this shelter in place and, mm. you know, trying to open up the market back up, so. Figuring out what that means for everyone. Yeah, yeah. so that's, that's, that's going up a lot. Well, you are welcome <laughs> back to the new and uncertain normal. Um, right. We are glad you're back with us. And today we have a really important topic, especially going into the summer for those of you who have little ones and just understanding what's going on, what we can do, what remains to be done. Um, on our docket today, we are covering disparity in education the child left behind. Dun, dun, dun. Right. So, <laughs> before we get into that, and we do have a special guest because we don't believe in in tackling subjects of such a magnitude without a subject matter expert, so we have a doctor in the building, mm-hmm. and we will get into that very soon, but first we wanted to recognize our boss base, so quick. Yeah, so, as you guys know, we do a boss bay and that boss bay is usually someone that is you know doing things at the community to make a difference not only for themselves but at the community at large and we also like to highlight and have been highlighting for the past um, two episodes we are highlighting another small business owner and that owner is lamont simmons and he started ls maintenance management llc with one agenda in mind, and that was excellent customer service that matches the quality of the work. After graduating with his certification in HVAC 2015, Lamont immediately started working for a big HVAC company as an installer. And once he was able to gain um, hands-on experience, he started to work for an apartment industry as a maintenance tech and eventually became a supervisor in that position. From there, he went on to... um, (laughs) have a leading role to become a maintenance regional manager doing the same kind of work with HVAC. Um, While acquiring all of these skills along the way, Lamont then started his own business called LS Maintenance Management. And the model there is a service with a smile. Lamont is also on the board of the Charlotte Family Housing. Um, LS Maintenance Management provides HVAC maintenance installation of HVAC, repair, um, plumbing, electrical, and they also do pressure washing. So they, you know, maintain the home. 
Um, and if anyone has ever does have any needs, um, mm-hmm. the divas can vouch for him. Right, it's getting hot. <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, he has definitely done work for us. And yeah. as you know, always whenever we promote a small business owner is because you know we will stand behind them, right. right? Yeah. And and so you know we've definitely had his services and been completely satisfied with his service. So again, if anyone ever have any needs um, with those kind of issues, remember. Um, LS Maintenance Manager is there to serve and fix the problem. All right. So we will have his information in the show notes, his mm-hmm. phone number. You can reach him on him, lshomerepair.com. He is on Facebook as LS Maintenance Management, LLC. Um, and, yep, he is he does free consultations. And, like I said, you can visit his website to submit a work order to let him know um, what you're interested in to get any kind of quotes. And his phone number is 980-230-6541. And so with that, we say, hey, hey bae. All right. So let's get into it. Today, we're talking about disparity in education because with everything going on in terms of COVID, I know a lot of students have had to be online students or they've had to, you know, maybe access resources that they might not have had before dealing with the Internet and things of that nature. So we just wanted to kind of understand what is going on, what quality education should look like, what some of the issues are. And so we brought in today our guest, Dr. Charity Brown Griffin. Say hello. Hello, hello. So we're going to read over her extensive bio and then get into some uh, some of the major uh, areas of this topic with her. So, Dr. Charity Brown Griffin is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Winston-Salem State University. She earned a BA in Psychology from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and an MA and PhD in School Psychology from the University of South Carolina. After completing her graduate training, Dr. Griffin served children and families through her practice as a nationally certified school psychologist, and she is also licensed as a psychologist by the North Carolina Psychology Board. Dr. Griffin's research program examines cultural and contextual factors that contribute to black youth's development. Her work integrates principles from multiple disciplines, school psychology, developmental psychology, education, to elucidate how young, how young, excuse me, young black youth's experiences with race-related processes in schools and communities influence educational and psychological outcomes. Her research on Topics including racial identity, racial socialization, racial discrimination, school racial climate, school engagement, and gender-related processes has been published in major media outlets such as Successful Black Parenting Magazine and peer-reviewed journals such as Psychology in the Schools, Journal of Black Psychology, Journal of Child and Family Studies, Journal of Applied School Psychology, Sex Roles, and others. Furthermore, she has received numerous awards and honors for her work, including the 2019 ERA, am I saying this right? So I'm just going to spell it out, A-E-R-A-S-R-C-D Fellowship in Middle Childhood Education and Development. And Dr. Griffin can tell us what that means. <laughs> right? Yeah, go to that was correct, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, we want to welcome you in all of these honors and accolades. I feel like she is qualified to answer a lot of your questions and just, you know, sound off of the issue and maybe some of the solutions. So, welcome. Welcome, Thank welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right.
We just wanted to go over first what we like to ask our guests just to give a little introduction is what does a day in the life of Dr. Griffin look like and how did you get into your field? So how did this did this field find you, as some people say, or did you kind of already know I want to do psychology? Great question. So I really think for me um, it was serendipitous, meaning I kind of stumbled upon it and mm-hmm. it uh, this career path really kind of found me. Okay. Um, so, um, born and raised in High Point, North Carolina, I always have to say that because I High represent Point. the 336 everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I went to University of North Carolina Chapel Hill for undergrad. And when I entered um, undergrad, I, um, throughout my childhood, I always liked working with children um, and I had love for science. And so I was a biology major. Um, pre-med with the goal of becoming a pediatrician Mm -hmm. um and so I was that enthusiastic freshman walking Mm -hmm. on a campus telling everybody I'm pre-med I'm going to medical school I'm (laughs) going to be a pediatrician bio is my major um and I took a biology class and my dreams got shattered real quick yes (laughs) bio 101 Yes. (laughs) Um, I thought I loved science, and I do love science, but it was something about um, not being able to have um, that human interaction in that way that Mm. didn't intrigue me as much. And, I mean, Mm. I was studying hardcore. I was going to office hours, and I still made, like, a struggle C. And for me, that was, like, the first C that I had, like, ever made in my life. I was kind of freaking out. And so... At that point, I really didn't have any direction because that was the vision that I had for myself. And the only um, sort of major goal I had set was this is what I'm going to do. This is the path. This is the plan. I didn't have a plan B. Um, But uh, luckily for me, um, I had a psychology course, Introduction to Psychology, with a dynamic professor who still continues to be a mentor to me today. Um, I really enjoyed her class. She was very engaging. I loved thinking about um, the way people think mm-hmm. um, and their their behaviors. Um, and so I got interested in psychology. Um, I met with that professor during her office hours, and she um, engaged me in some undergraduate research experiences. She said, hey, why don't you come work in my lab, in my research lab? Um, I know you're used to doing natural science research because again I was a bio major that first year so I had kind of got involved in some lab work in biology but again it didn't really interest me as much Mm -hmm. she said well let me show you and talk to you about social science research um, where we kind of study human thoughts and behaviors and my lab in particular focuses on black children um, and their development Mm -hmm. Um, and so really the rest is history Um, she uh, welcomed me into her research lab I fell in love with the work Um, she mentored me and introduced me to graduate programs um, that that piqued my interest, um, and I, I pursued my graduate degree um, in school psychology um, because I had that love for understanding um, not only human thought and behavior, but specifically that in the the education context and arena. Mm-hmm. Um, so school psychology was sort of the, the perfect fit of understanding education, um, educational phenomenon, and then also understanding psychology um and the, and the psychological aspects of behavior mm. yeah, i think that is just awesome like i right. love to hear stories where the, you know that teacher just goes and pulled you d- aside you're right just does that yeah. one thing mm-hmm. it changes the trajectory of your life like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's pretty cool <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Okay, so one of the things, as you know, Quick kind of said when we entered the episode, was that right now every state to a varying degree has now tried to lift some of the stay at home. And I know kids now are kind of ending school, but yep. now trying to figure out, you know, summer education mm-hmm. or there's a lot mm-hmm. of emphasis on school in the fall and what that looks like. So, you know, as we know, COVID-19 really magnified a lot of the economic disparity and racial disparities in terms of a lack of access to equal levels of education. So mm-hmm. what aspects um, or what some of the impacts that you've seen, Dr. Griffin? It honestly, just to be quite frank and to say it in the simplest forms, has really been a mess. Mm. Um, and I think it's been a mess not because um, educators haven't been putting in the work, not because parents and students have been putting um, have not been putting in the work, but because this is really just unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's one thing to engage in remote learning. Um, it's another thing to engage in remote learning in the middle of a pandemic right. like that so um, has just sort of thrust upon you this very abrupt transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, um, I've seen school districts, um, so the the primary school district that I'm affiliated with is with salem Forsyth County Schools. Mm-hmm. Um they have had some amazing efforts, so I applaud them on their efforts. They have um, distributed Verizon um, hotspots. They have passed out Chromebooks um, to families in need. Of course, even with the availability of the hotspots and the Chromebooks, there were some initial barriers for um, getting the message to families who needed them how to even get them. Mm. So again, like here's a resource that's available, but then there's a a disparity in which those who even understand that their resource is available um, to them. Um, So they were um, initially trying to even get over that hump. Um, But then once they even got over that hump, what we began to notice is that students weren't logged in. Right. Mm. So they have the educational technology, right? They have the the hotspot and the Chromebook, but they're still not engaging. And so then we have to dig deeper and kind of peel back the layers to get a better understanding of why. And there are a number, so many different factors as to that why. for some, we're seeing that they live, so for some students and families, they're in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Winston-Salem, Forsyth County, like many counties, I'm sure, across North Carolina, they have these pockets um, uh, where the broadband infrastructure is very limited. Yep. And so the hotspots were Verizon, and so if you don't get good Verizon service yeah. at your residence, then the hotspot isn't going to work or it's mm-hmm. going to be inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, yeah, you have it, but you can't use it um, consistently. And then, of course, we know with the stay-at-home policies in place, there is no such thing as going to a library, going to a Starbucks or other sort of community centers um, that may be close by to get access. Mm. (laughs) So that that was shut down. Um, So then you have limited broadband infrastructure or inconsistent not even understanding and knowing what are the health conditions of these families. Like, you know, are, is everyone in the home healthy? Right. So there have been some students that I have known, family members have been directly impacted by COVID where they have tested positive. And so you can imagine, right, testing positive, that's going to completely put you in a position where you are not going to engage, not because you're not motivated, but you have to think of that basic need of your health first. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> right. It's yeah. certainly a priority. 
um, and not necessarily thinking about logging in to complete an assignment if you or a family member um, are ill. Um, some other things that we have been seeing um, are older siblings taking care of younger siblings. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. We've had um, families who um, are um, comprised of um, caregivers who are essential workers. Mm-hmm. And so they're not in the home. Right. The older sibling is there um, during the day to provide support to the younger sibling. Um, and then they have that one Chromebook or that, that one desktop that they're using to make sure that younger sibling who's in elementary school, who's working on literacy skills, right. make sure they get their work done. And so certainly I'm exhausted. I don't even have time to engage with my own work right. as a high school student right. <laughs> um, because I'm, I'm supporting and helping other family members. And, uh, um, so, um, so many scenarios. Right. And those, I mean, we had definitely thought about, you know, a lot of those I was, especially thinking about, you know, the single parent home and where mm-hmm. that person might be an essential worker and, you know, had to go be in the front lines, be it, you know, nursing, CPA, whatever that um, required them to go back home. And that's, it was the child that was either taking care of themselves yep. suddenly mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, trying, like you said, trying to take care of a younger sibling. And the last thing they want to do is log on to Zoom and, right. you know, right. <laughs> draw triangles. Right. Like, it's just not a priority. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. then even thinking about um, something significant, um, parents as educators, right, do they have the capacity, not mm. knowing what the caregiver's level of education is? Mm. Do they have a, even a good mm. grasp of the curriculum to help their their child to navigate this remote learning process? Um, I think of um, individuals who um, English is their second language. Yeah. Right? right. And then, so you have double the barriers, right? Because then how are you getting them access? Are the packets that were sent home, are they in that first native language? They were not what language were they in and then if if another language is spoken in the home then how do they engage with Mm. um, perhaps the regular education teacher who is not fluent in that family's first language um it it has been just so many different factors um that have come into play that again Mm. perhaps could have been planned for but everything was so abrupt Right. right and so i mean you know Educators were doing it the best that they can, mm-hmm. um, but it really begs the question of like what's going to happen moving forward, and that is why it's really critical for our leaders to begin making these decisions now. Yeah. Um, while we're, I know it's a very difficult thing to do, but hey, you know, school traditionally for most um, uh, districts starts in August, and mm-hmm. so we're in May as we approach that date. If we are going to be remote, um, we're providing instruction remotely, or if we're going to be hybrid, or if we're going to be back face-to-face, mm-hmm. within the next few weeks, it's time to make some of those critical decisions so mm-hmm. educators know how to prepare Absolutely. and so we can make sure that students have the access that they need mm-hmm. as best as what we can do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I know I know, at my job, we're constantly on conference calls, and that's all I hear about parents. They're now homeschooling mm-hmm. they call it and I just I can't imagine like I barely got through old math and now there's a new math so I can't <laughs> imagine you know being a person like ESL as you said or just various other barriers besides my own lack of mathematical skill right. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah so I know some of the words we're hearing around because you know I think 
this situation has thrust, you know, just a lack of equality, a lack of equity. And, and you're hearing a lot of those buzzwords in some of, you know, media stories. But I feel like sometimes people use that interchangeably. So could you maybe in your own words or as, as simply as possible discuss what is that difference? E- equity versus equality, because they're not sure. the same, right? They are not the same. So when I teach about these concepts in class and mm-hmm. I write about these concepts, I use um, what I think is a common practical example that people can sort of um, gravitate to. So think about like you have runners sprinting mm-hmm. around an oval track during a competition. So the concept of equality would mean we treat every runner the exact same way. Okay. So we ensure that the runner starts at the same place on the track. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, on the surface, right, if you think about it that way, oh, that's fair. Everyone has the same starting point. Mm. But what we know in reality is that if you're running on the inside lane, mm-hmm. you have a distinct advantage mm-hmm. over a runner that's on the outside lane. Mm-hmm because the distance that they have to travel is shorter. So then that's when we can think about equality and how that comes to play. Because equality um, would then mean, hey, that same starting point doesn't necessarily result in fairness, but if we begin to think about equity Mm -hmm. and we change their starting point, we stagger those starting positions in order to offset the disadvantages that the outside runners have mm-hmm. in those outside lanes. Mm-hmm. And so then from this example, you can see how equity is going to recognize the differences. Mm. And because it recognizes difference, it's going to provide this tailored um, sort of treatment mm-hmm. um, to help sort of counteract that unequal um, uh, individual opportunity. Okay. So equity is about, hey, the difference exists, now let's make sure that difference doesn't result in disparity. Mm. Whereas equality is all about, hey, everyone's going to be treated the same. And I think that there's space and opportunity for both um, in education, but I think we can't necessarily, um, we certainly shouldn't be making equality the goalpost. We need to make sure that the experiences that we are providing for our students are equitable. Mm -hmm. Because like we just talked about in these various scenarios, The same thing is not going to work for all students. Giving a hot spot in a Chromebook is not going to work for all students. That's equality. Right. Mm -hmm. But because there are differences that exist, like economic differences, geographic location, whether your parent is an essential worker or not, do you have a parent who has the capacity to support you at home? Mm -hmm. Are you, do you have, um, is English your first language? Do you have any special education needs? We need to think about our students as individuals mm-hmm. and then take an approach that considers equity. Mm. I like that example because, like you say, if you watch track and field, even if you never run, right. I'm you, like, you, yeah, they do stagger the people. Like, yeah. yep, I see it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So um, I know you were t- saying that, you no, know, and was the same that they had given out uh, laptops and hotspots and but was also mentioning that still people had not checked in. And I know some of the stats here in Mecklenburg County um, were that, you know, there were over 4,000 students who had not checked in through either remote learning or even confirming, you know, whether they had the ability to log in virtually. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And then there were students K through three, because my son's in second grade, um, they were not even issued the laptops or the hotspots. So, but still, they, you know, everyone wasn't issued a packet. So mm-hmm. some of them still had online learning. They still had Zoom. They still had those things. So yeah. it was kind of like disregarding three mm-hmm. grades mm-hmm. because I guess because, you know, their homework or whatever wouldn't be as hard as the person yeah. in fifth grade mm-hmm. taking science. Yeah. Um, and so were those, you know, those statistics similar there? And then also, you know, did y'all, once you discovered that there were students who were not logging in, like what measures had been taken? Mm. Great question. So our numbers um, in Winston-Salem and Forsyth County um, school district are not far off from those numbers that you just provided. I'm not sure off the top of my head how many students are in Charlotte-Mecklenburg County, but when you look at our numbers, it seems like we have a greater percentage that did not log in. Right. Um, so we have about 55,000 students in Winston-Salem Forsyth County Schools, mm-hmm. and about 5,000 students have not logged on. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, we're talking about not even logged on. So that's not including students who have logged on but are disengaged. Mm-hmm. Students who are logged on but they're still not completing assignments. Right. Right. So, I mean, that number is still not necessarily the best picture um, or storyteller of who we're reaching as educators and who we aren't. Right. Um, So, and of course, we just talked about the myriad of issues or reasons of why people are unable to log in Mm -hmm. with um, motivation, not necessarily being at all a factor, but just literal accessibility um, um, and being able to do so. And I think, so interestingly enough, my husband is a high school English teacher. (laughs) Um, And so we have this conversation almost on the daily, seeing him trying to engage his students. Um, He has had students who have not been able to log on for various reasons, some of which we've already talked about. Um, And so I've been able to see kind of firsthand what educators have been doing, of course, reading and hearing and having conversations with other educators um, they are making phone calls. I mean, they're trying to mm-hmm. get parents on the phone, trying to get students on the phone, other caregivers, whoever, whatever adult is in the space to kind of help say um, or kind of query what what is the issue? Is it that the hotspot is not working? Is something wrong with your laptop? Did you pick up your laptop? Maybe you never got your laptop. Right. Um, is everyone in the home well? Um, is anyone sick? Um, just trying to do these mental health checks, accessibility checks. Um, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. There have often been times where phone numbers have been disconnected. Um, people have um, been facing economic in- instability, so some students have moved right. even since mm-hmm. the crisis um, has started. And so a number that once was a home number is no longer a home number um, because of, of said move. And so it's been difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, educators have recognized, again, it's unprecedented, so no one really knows what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, right. They, uh, teachers have been working a lot with school counselors, so the social workers in the building, psychologists in the building to kind of provide those wraparound supports. But again, remember, we had this stay-at-home order in place, so folks weren't really supposed to be traveling like that either. <laughs> so it's just a very different way of trying to provide support completely remotely, where in the past, a student doesn't show up to school, the social worker would show up to your house. Um, but again, the, the ability to be able to do that now is certainly limited, right. um, due to safety, uh, reasons. And so 
again, trying, educators have tried their best, but let's just be honest, there's students who are just falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know um, I had read an article where it was actually a teacher that was saying she was not going to make her students do um, the virtual learning and log on because she was like, I was also thrown into this. She was like, there are people that, parents that had suddenly become teachers and some teachers had to learn remote. She said, but think about the teachers that also had to become parents to mm-hmm. monitor their child's Zoom. And, you yeah. know, so sometimes it wasn't just the child not willing to do it. Like the parent was just like, I can't, I don't have the capacity to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, you know what, mm-hmm. what I have to do to be able to also monitor my child. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. 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 It's heavy. It is. It, it really is. Um. So, Dr. Griffin, can you tell us some of the things that you are currently like researching or working on? Sure. Um. So, the pre-COVID, <laughs> um, nineteen. My my focus, um, certainly is beginning to shift to adjust to the times and what's relevant. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, I have been really interested in understanding Black uh, youth experiences in school. Um. So, uh, of course, uh, identifying as a Black woman, I had my own lived experiences. Um, many which in the educational sector were pleasant, but many which were also unpleasant. Um, and so when I began to, like I told the story about how I got interested in this work, um, began to work in that research lab in undergrad, um, I was um, always questioning, gosh, like, what are these experiences with discrimination that black students are experiencing and how is it actually impacting their educational achievement? What are these microaggressions? And again, of course, as a high school student, I didn't know I I identified as a microaggression Mm -hmm. when I was discouraged from applying to UNC Chapel Hill, but told to apply to another school, right? Right? I didn't didn't identify that um, as that then, but of course now having the knowledge that I know as I evolved, um, I was like, wow, gosh, like these things that were happening to me in high school, they were racism mm-hmm. uh, experiences mm-hmm. and how and trying to reflect and how that impacted me. Mm. And so the school experiences and context project um, is a project that I'm doing with students attending schools in Winston-Salem, Forsyth County, um, where they fill out a survey and they talk about their different experiences in school, how they experience the climate, are they experiencing racism, how are they encouraged to take AP and honors courses or not, what are the discipline practices? Do they feel engaged? And then I'm interested in looking at how these experiences differ across contexts. So are they different at predominantly black schools as compared to predominantly white schools mm. or racially mixed schools? Mm. Um, and so some of the findings have been really interesting. I think we automatically um, assume that when we are in predominantly black spaces, um, that these experiences are limited. But what I've been finding is that even in predominantly black schools, we still have a majority white and female education um, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, white and female educators. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that has also been interesting to see, well, like, hey, the student population is black, mm-hmm. but then what do the teachers look like? Right. Um, and then how is that impacting the relationships mm-hmm. of these experiences? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second project I'm working on is a summer program um, called the Youth Rise Summer Program. Um, and that program is really focused on um, amplifying youth voice, particularly mm-hmm. black youth, 
um, who live in um, low-income sectors um, in our city and trying to understand what barriers and opportunities um, do they perceive. And mm -hmm. so the city, I've been working with the city and trying to understand this problem of economic mobility that mm -hmm. we have within our county. Our county has very poor economic mobility. I think the 44th um, poorest um, county in the country and so, again, not at the state level. We're talking about the national level in terms of economic mobility. Um, and so um, I received some grant funds to um, host this program where we are understanding from the youth's perspective, because a lot of this work is often done with adults. Mm -hmm. um, and it's often done um, in a way where researchers come in and study people, but they don't, and then they leave, but then they don't actually talk to the people, live with the people, get their lived experience and do work with the people. Mm. Um, and so that's what I am trying to um, do with this summer program is collaborate with youth. Um, and I put them in spaces where they're able to talk to community stakeholders, like city council members, school principals, um, and really advocate for themselves. So trying to generate some grassroots efforts mm. um, around economic mobility in the city. Like, how do you even begin to tackle something that for one is so impactful but right. it just sounds like it's a lot of moving parts yeah it it really is um i think starting off small and understanding that change takes time yeah and so as eager as i am i understand that you know, these systems weren't built overnight and mm -hmm. they're not going to change overnight. Right. Um, and so it's really about empowerment. How can we take a group um, whose voice um, is often denied um, or silenced and give them a seat at the table? Mm -hmm. um, so although it may not change overnight, they're empowered and then they can go and empower someone else. Um, because they've learned these skills, their voice has been amplified, um, and then they can do the work. Because again, let's be honest, I, you know, I'm always honest with my families, I don't live in those communities, mm. right? And so I try not to come in and say, I don't want to be anyone's savior or mm. expert. Right. <laughs> I don't, I'm not the expert on your lived experience, you are. Mm. And so that is why I want to empower you and give you this skill so you can tell people what it is like. Um, to be in these spaces. Um, and we start off with a really small group. So last year we had 12 youth. We will be get, uh, throwing the program this year, implementing the program this year, I should say. Um, but of course, we're trying to get really creative mm -hmm. um, because of COVID-19. Right. And so right. um, not sure if it will be face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. It'll probably be a large virtual component, perhaps maybe maybe hybrid, mm -hmm. where we meet a couple times um, in the summer face-to-face, -face, but until we kind of figure out where this crisis is going, right. it'll probably be largely virtual yeah. this summer. Yeah, and what led, like, as you were working, like, what led you to, I know you're from that area, so of course that's always important to kind of take care of home first, but mm -hmm. what led you to kind of take on these two projects or want to even start something so, you know, impactful, so large in terms of how it will help people in the mm -hmm. future? That's a great question. Um, so I, I, I love black people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I just love us. And um, I'm a researcher. And while I found value in research, and I know that 
Um, research is a significant part of my job um, in order for me to get tenure, right? So there's a practicality component. Right. I also do not deem it to be valuable to just produce knowledge that is only going to be accessible to other researchers mm-hmm. and to other people in the academy. Mm-hmm. That's crap to me. Okay. <laughs> like, um, I want to produce research that is meaningful, accessible, and impactful for everyday people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, I know that I'm one person. I'm not going to solve all the world's or the community's problems. Um, and neither am I seeking to solve their problems. I want to shine a light to um people's perspective the people who are living in these communities their perspective to amplify it um and to collaborate with them to try to make change so that's just always been my goal is how can i do something more meaningful because publishing in a peer-reviewed journal hey that's great mm-hmm. but <laughs> i don't want it to just stop there no one's gonna read that right mm-hmm. um that work how do i get this work to the people and make sure that it is doing something for the people Mm. And so I feel like these projects um, are kind of reflective of that, where they're doing something for the people mm. um, that that was generated largely by them and, and me just mm-hmm. sort of being a, a, a collaborator and a facilitator of that. Yeah, that's really, I keep saying awesome because I just, I don't have any it other is. words, obviously. <laughs> it really is. But okay. think of all the lives is directly right, impacting. Right, right. And you mentioned yeah. two words. Now, I'm familiar with them, but just we always like to, in case someone may not know. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned two terms mm-hmm. as you were kind of talking about um, just the research and how you kind of got moving within your career. So one was microaggression and one was economic mobility. So for those yes. who maybe have never heard of those terms, what what does that mean? Yeah, so so microaggressions, I think of microaggressions as this typically brief, mm-hmm. um, but common. And that's why it's impactful, because it's common. Mm-hmm. Um, like verbal, it can be verbal, it can be behavioral, it can be environmental, communication, rather intentional. So sometimes people do these things intentionally, right. or they do them um, unintentionally. But it transmits a very like hostile, negative message to the target person. Okay. Um, and, and that message is typically... Um, hostile and negative because they're a member of a particular marginalized group. Mm. So again, because I'm black, mm-hmm. what what type of hey? It's unintentional. It was very brief, but it happens to me all the time, day in and day out. It's the behavior. It's the right. environment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it is this subtle or not so subtle communication. But typically, microaggressions are relatively subtle, um, and they're often um, hidden behind the veil of being unintentional. Mm-hmm. Um, but we again, we know that they're impactful because they're common. Mm-hmm. We get just beat in the head with them all the time yeah um and 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 so that begins to take its toll um on one psychologically Mm-hmm. I think one example of that is like when I used to go to court in certain counties, even dressed mm-hmm. up to the T with my bar card and everything. Right. Here we go. The ba- when you so as an attorney, you go to the front. You don't sit where everyone else is. You go to the front so you could talk to the DA or whoever. Mm-hmm. And every time in a smaller county, I would be stopped by the bailiff and told where the, the defendant should sit. Wow. Every mm-hmm. time. Wow. So I guess that would be like real yes. life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is a perfect example of a microaggression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That hey, I'm not, I'm not intentionally again behind the veil of I'm not intentionally trying to offend you, 
but my behavior is hostile and it's aggressive um, and it's embedded in a stere- a negative right. racial stereotype of what you think my role should be mm-hmm. in this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> this yeah. is the hat that I should be wearing in this particular space. You just because put I'm words to my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So, yeah, and then economic mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, so economic mobility, I think of, I like to think of a ladder, like the rungs of a ladder. So what is a person's ability or individual or a family What is their ability to be able to um, climb up the rungs of that ladder? Mm. So when we think of the rungs of the ladder in terms of economic mobility, we're talking about economic status, which is usually measured in income. Mm -hmm. So what is your likelihood of, hey, your family, your individual's household income or social status um, as measured by maybe their career um, and their income is at a particular rung on the ladder? What is your ability to be able to move up three rungs? Mm. How in in your lifetime? And again, when I was talking about one to seven four star county, what we know um, is that for this area, um, that ability to be able to do that is very poor. Mm. That if you are born into the lowest quintile, meaning the lowest percentage in terms of income, mm-hmm. so your family is below the poverty line, you are likely then to also, as an adult to also then be below the poverty line. Mm. Okay. She in there teaching. I like these visual no, examples. I got the ladder. I got the track. I, am, like, I got she, it. She can give us some good progress. You know what I mean? I'm going to audit the class. I need to learn some things. Okay, so one of the things we like to do, just because this is a heavy topic and we don't like people to leave discouraged Mm -hmm. because, like you said, anything that has taken years to become a problem, it's going to take a while to fix the problem. It's not an overnight solution. But we wanted to ask you, just as someone in the field, in the work, um, what are some of the maybe resources or organizations as we look forward into, you know, kids are starting schools and summer programs Mm -hmm. this summer and in the fall? What are some things that you found to be impactful or available? Or maybe I know you said you were shifting some of your focus in, you know, now that COVID is here. What are some of the things that you think are impactful or or resources for those that need them during this time? Great question. And I'm not sure I have the the complete answer to that question. I mean, I think I have. uh, So I can mention some um, helpful resources Um, One that comes to mind, first starting with the people that might be in your school building for Mm -hmm. parents and students, that is your your school counselor, your school psychologist, who's unfortunately sometimes we don't even know who the school psychologist is, Mm -hmm. Um, and then also the school counselor. That, to me, is like the triad of, of support and help, and they can provide so many resources. Mm. Um, and, again, typically they only have one or two schools. So, I mean, a mm. lot of times they may know the students in their situ- situations, even though the students and the families may not know them as well. Um and so I think that it's important for families to reach out to them. Um, I have known many of social workers that have worked with community partners and myself as a school psychologist, and I've practiced to get to light bills paid, to mm. get cell phone bills paid. Like I'm talking basic right. needs met um, and being able to start there. Like if you have an emergency, and a lot of times people didn't know. Again, mm. it's so... Um, there, there's this huge disparity in even accessibility of the resources that do exist mm. 
for the people that need it the most. Yeah. <laughs> like the people that need it the most oftentimes don't even know it's there. Right. Um, and so there were oftentimes families that didn't know that we could provide these things for them. They didn't know that, hey, all you need to do, we have some discretionary funds, albeit not much, mm-hmm. but we do have a pot, small pot of money that if you need help, yeah. you know, paying this light bill or getting this meal, we can provide that for you today. Mm-hmm. But just kind of reach out to us and let us know. So I would definitely start uh, within your your school building. And I think that's something that parents and students need to be mindful of is also mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, that can't be understated in a time that, again, is unprecedented for us all, even right. the adults scenario, of mm-hmm. course. So um, much more unprecedented, you know, certainly for the kids. Um, and how are they processing missing out on these social um, Mm -hmm. opportunities, missing out on perhaps some really important developmental milestones like prom, right? right? And graduation, like how are these things, you know, kindergarten, your your kindergarten year year and ending that with a Mm -hmm. certain sort of level of excitement, how is that impacting? Mm -hmm. Um, So talking to your kids and and doing these mental health checks and then certainly – um, reaching out to mental health supports within your community um, if you or your child feel like this is becoming overwhelming. Um, their Psychology Today, if you go to psychologytoday.com, they have a great resource tool where you can look up therapists mm-hmm. and counselors. Um, you can look at their bio, what they specialize in, um, what their fees are, if they take insurance, if they take Medicaid. You can see their pictures. So a lot of times, of course, people want to be demographically matched. So, Mm -hmm. hey, as a black woman, I want to have a black therapist. Mm -hmm. I can see their face and, you know, kind of say like, hey, she may look like somebody I can connect with. Let me reach out um, and see um, if she's accepting new clients. And a a lot of therapists um, and counselors today are doing virtual Mm -hmm. um, um, practice uh, where they're engaging in telehealth, right, so again, yeah. providing these sessions virtually. So I would encourage parents to do that also. Mm-hmm. Um, as we transition to the summer, um, and with Governor Cooper um, doing sort of this soft opening or transition into phase two, mm-hmm. um, it seems like there are going to be some day camps that are available. Um, so I would reach out to resources like your local YMCA, your local community centers, my program is held at a local community center, um, and oftentimes it's by word of mouth that the referrals are made to my program. Um, and so I think if you if you can get in those spaces, like walk to your community center and see what programs they're going to have this summer. Some may be face-to-face and some may be virtual, but I mm-hmm. think that will be able to provide some support. Um, of course, making sure that the appropriate safety precautions are, are are taken, but um, that could provide some support to students as well, both academically and socially. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of community centers have both academic and sort of more uh, programs that are geared towards more like social um, type of activities. Okay. Well, that is a wealth of information, a wealth of knowledge. We really just appreciate your time. And we always like to ask guests, I'm not sure if you're currently working with, I know you usually work um, with youth, but I'm not sure if you're currently taking on any as clients per se. But for those who maybe want to learn more about your work or just any accessibility you feel comfortable providing, like where can they find you, whether it's an email or social 
Sure. So um, I have a lab website, www.madlab, that's M-A-A-D, lab, at WSSU.com. Um, and that mad lab is sort of represent that, you know, hey, I'm mad at the world about these uh, systematic inequities and I'm ready to change it. So that's what we seem <laughs> to do <laughs> um, in our research lab. But it stands for Minority Academic Achievement and Development. Um, labs, so yes, I like um, double meaning there. Right. <laughs> um, so you can find out about my work there, and then follow me on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is at Dr. G Psych. So um, D R G P S Y C. All right. Well, thank you for being here. And we have time for a short listener letter. I didn't know as a, you are married, so I didn't know if you wanted to chime in for the listener letter or if you want to. I will, I will stay for the listener letter. Okay. All right. And we'll get your perspective as a married woman. All right. So it is time for our segment called Dear Diva. And so we uh, encourage you, if you ever have any questions, want our comments, uh, you can email us at diva advice at gmail.com that is d-i-v-a a-d-v-i-c-e at gmail.com and so this letter this week is dear divas i'm a newlywed congratulations <laughs> and we've been figuring out who should pay what my husband thinks everything should be in joint accounts because his parents had joint accounts he thinks keeping things separate as i suggested doing outside of our savings means i don't trust him what are your thoughts on joint and separate accounts for married couples? Signed, Anonymous. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Y'all got some heavy stuff. You right? know, it's never easy. <laughs> um, so, I've been married for coming up on eight years um, in August. For all of the eight years of my marriage, we have had both a joint account and also a separate account. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, my husband and I, we have separate accounts in which our um, employer paychecks are directly deposited. Um, And then we also have, um, and that includes, of course, a, a separate checking and savings. And then we also have at another bank, um, a joint uh, checking and savings account. Mm-hmm. And so I think for us, it has worked um, because quite frankly, my husband and I have different spending habits. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so um, for me, in a relationship, you really, you want to have transparency. And so mm-hmm. we are very transparent um, in terms of how much we both make. We know our salaries. We have a general sort of understanding of um what um who's paying what bills and where the the money is going but then you you also want some autonomy with the money that you made right Right, and so like it's both of your money certainly but then you want to say hey well if i want to you know go to dairy queen and get a blizzard i don't want you know my husband checking like hey i wanted wanted a dairy queen blizzard you know on my way home from work right um i think that it has worked for us because it's the balance of both having something of our own um but then we make sure um that we put money aside in the joint account that um for our bills so Mm -hmm. that it takes 
um, our bills um, out automatically every month, that we have a joint savings and we can kind of see our progression together as a couple. Um, but um, I think having the separation and the shared works for us. Okay. And that is a married perspective. Yes. All right. Quick. What are I mean, thoughts? I love her perspective. Look, I was going to be like, so y'all, do y'all do a percentage? Is that how y'all do the joint savings? You think mm-hmm. it? Because I'm all about that. Like, that's how I feel about it. I feel like you should have a joint savings, maybe a joint, you know, checking that the bills, like she said, come directly out of it. So mm-hmm. a certain percentage going into that, mm-hmm. a joint savings. But, yeah, I definitely think you should have your own checking and savings an account and it's not for hiding money or anything like, like the that trust thing yeah. he's saying yeah for sure yeah um and you know i guess the same way this diva was like that's the way her parents did it mm-hmm. that's how my parents did it they had separate mm-hmm. joint savings you know so yeah that's yeah i totally think yeah it's fine. i'm curious and again i'm clearly dr griffin is the psychology expert here <laughs> I, but i am curious why he feels like it's a trust thing i know right. like i'm always when someone says something like what makes you say that like what's mm-hmm. let's dig deeper in that because i don't necessarily think not putting all of your money in one pot means you don't trust a person mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just very curious as to why he thinks that. I understand a lot of times, especially if we see, if we have parents who are in long marriages, we want to emulate certain things. Um, so I, I get that. I just don't, yeah, the trust part is like, mm, where's that come from? Right. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> so I also, again, you know, my parents are, are have been married a long time and they've done the what you know dr griffin and her husband do Mm -hmm. they have some joint things and they have some separate things so i i think obviously there's more than one way to skin a cat i'm not going to say it's wrong to have everything in joint accounts i just think that you run into uh like like the example of the blizzard or Mm -hmm. something like that when you go to buy something that the other person doesn't feel was necessary it might cause more problems than might be necessary so As opposed to if you say, okay, what are our goals as a couple? What are our bills, our expenses as a couple? And what percentages of what we bring to the table do we want to put into mm-hmm. these joint ventures? Right. Whether it's we're saving towards something or we're trying to invest in things. And then we use, you know, another account for... Um, just our various uh, household bills because I'm sure as we'll get into it down the line, you don't necessarily have one savings for multiple purposes. Mm-hmm. Usually you have a sa- each savings account should have a specific purpose. But that's another mm-hmm. story for another day. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I think in the meantime it does prevent when you have, like you said, some of that, my joint, you know, all the bills are paid, I've done what right. I was supposed to do and then if I want to go over here and buy a pair of shoes, well, everything's taken care of so I can you know everybody has their thing or their splurge and I think sometimes you might butt heads on that if everything's in one pot so I would say definitely sit down and talk to him maybe about why Mm -hmm. he's thinking it's a trust thing and just why he might not be open open to another way to handle things because really as long as things get paid yeah like yeah. It shouldn't matter one way or the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, best of luck, Diva. I hope it works out for you. <laughs> <laughs> and that, look, as our last guest said, we ask one question at a time. Yes. Because last time I got, right, I got a little intense <laughs> with my questions. You know, I can rattle them off. So, right. ask a question and wait for the answer. So, if they want to write in, um, where, where can they write into to, you know, oh, if they yes. want to be heard? One more time. If you want to be heard, you <laughs> yes. write to diva advice at gmail. Mm-hmm. Dot com. All right, so now it's time for Quick's Tips. 
Yes, so um, as we were going through COVID-19, of course, the Small Business Administration um, have issued out loans, and particularly there there was a Paycheck Protection Program loan. Mm -hmm. Um, And my diva advice to you guys is just to um, make sure that you are adhering to the um, guidelines of what makes this loan um, forgivable because yep. if not you will be on those things back mm-hmm. and I know that um, there are requirements on it you know with how many employees that you have if you you know signed up that you had so many employees mm-hmm. that those employees stayed on full time mm-hmm. um, the amount of hours that they worked that they you know the funds were geared towards rent mm-hmm. and you know utilities so there were very specific buckets that the money could be used for so if you are a recipient of one of these loans I would definitely say to make sure that you have a really really good accounting yep. program in place that you are documenting these things because again it's you know a government loan and they have the right to be able to say that if you didn't meet certain things that it becomes now a loan not a forgivable loan but something that you have to pay back Mm -hmm. and um, look at the maturity date this is not a forever loan it matures in two years Mm -hmm. Um, so just make sure that you're looking at the small print it does matter um, if you are a recipient of these loans because we want to make sure that if you were given that money it does forgivable and that it you know was able to benefit you in your business and not harm you yeah yeah and i just always harp i know because student loans are petty and i feel (laughs) away so i always harp on forgiveness versus cancellation Mm -hmm. please make sure you understand the definition of that and are they saying forgiveness as in they're acting as a loan never existed Mm -hmm. or are they saying because a lot of places when they forgive something that's still treated as taxable income so you may not owe them but you're going to owe uncle sam because it looks like you made that much extra for that Mm -hmm. um, filing year so definitely understand if it's a, it's forgiven meaning cancellation it, it never happened right or you're you know like i said still tethered to an irs bill all right so thank you for being with us this uh episode we appreciate our guests hopefully you check her out we will have her website and some of the resources that mm-hmm. she mentioned on our website as well as in our show notes and we will definitely see you next time when we get back all right, see you next time. And I'm hoping at this point in time, most of the kids are out for the summer. So hope we get those virtual graduations in. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. All right, see you guys. Have a great attitude. All right, bye.